Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Merle Silkwood had never considered herself a feminist. The 49-year-old was a Christian, a small-town Texan, and most importantly, a mother. She believed in equality, sure, but in her opinion, the hippies and bra burners were taking it too far. And yet, on October 25, 1975, Merle stood on stage at one of the largest feminist events in the country the National Organization for Women's Annual Conference. 3,000 women and a few dozen men cheered from the bleachers, waving signs with slogans like, Out of the Mainstream, Into the Revolution, and Equal Rights Now. Merle and her husband, Bill Silkwood, stepped up to the podium. The middle-aged couple could not have looked more out of place, But as the National Organization for Women's president handed Merle a membership certificate, the auditorium fell silent. Merle bent towards the microphone and eked out a nervous thank you. Then she glanced at the audience and saw a photo of her daughter's face staring back at her. It was pasted onto a sign with the words, Who Killed Karen? scrawled on it. Suddenly, Merle remembered why she was there. To get justice or at least answers for her daughter, Karen Silkwood, who had mysteriously died the year before. She never expected her girl to become a martyr, much less for the women's movement, but she was thankful for them. They seemed to be the only ones who cared. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we covered Karen Silkwood's attempts to expose the dangerous working conditions at a nuclear power plant. This week, we'll cover the failed investigations into her death and the government conspiracy she may have accidentally discovered. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state.
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Around 7.30 on the night of November 13, 1974, a truck driver spotted a wrecked car on the side of Highway 74 near Crescent, Oklahoma. The lifeless body of Karen Silkwood sat inside. She had been an employee and union organizer at the nearby Kerr-McGee nuclear plant. 28-year-old Karen had been on her way to Oklahoma City to meet with a New York Times journalist and an official from her union's national office. There, she planned to hand over a folder of documents that would show the truth about her employer, Kerr McGee. She had evidence that the company was endangering its workers, fabricating quality control documents, and even losing dangerous amounts of radioactive material. Of course, the truck driver didn't know this. All he saw was a mangled Honda Civic. Karen had been heading south on the two-lane highway when her car drifted across the median line and skidded 240 feet on the grassy shoulder. The car smashed into a concrete wing wall, and it looked like Karen died on impact. The trucker immediately radioed for help, but before the Oklahoma Highway Patrol could get there, Two Kerr-McGee employees showed up and started surveying the wreckage. These men later claimed that they weren't sent by anyone, but their speed did seem suspicious. They recognized Karen Silkwood from the plant and sped off to call an ambulance. By the time they got back, Oklahoma Highway Patrol Officer Rick Fagan was there. Fagan found dozens of papers scattered around the crash site, Some of them were clearly related to Karen's work with the local chapter of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, detailing the chapter's demands for their next round of contract negotiations. The other papers were harder to parse. Some were personal correspondence and notes. Others looked like official Kermigee documents. Fagan tossed them into the back of the car, where the trucker had already collected a small pile. Fagan also found two marijuana cigarettes and a few loose pills in Karen's purse. When the paramedics arrived, they found a few more pills in her pockets. Then they loaded her body aboard and raced off into the night. By the time the ambulance finally pulled up at the hospital, Karen was pronounced dead on arrival. Meanwhile, in Oklahoma City, OCAW official Steve Wadka was getting antsy. He assured the New York Times reporter that Karen would be there soon with the documents, but secretly felt doubtful. Karen's boyfriend, Drew Stevens, was also there. He and Wadka started calling everyone they knew in Crescent. Soon, they found out that Karen was dead. The men were stunned, and Drew could barely hold himself together. He refused to believe that Karen was killed in an accidental crash. She was too good of a driver for that. He immediately assumed there was foul play. Wadka knew that Karen was carrying classified documents for the Union. He sprung into action to figure out where those had gone. Wadka, Drew, and the Times journalist drove back to Crescent to check out the crime scene themselves. 
By the time they got to the crash site on Highway 74, it was nearly midnight. All they could find were a few skid marks, a piece of tire, and a copy of Karen's paycheck stuck in the mud. When Officer Rick Fagan showed up at his office the next morning, Drew and Wadka were waiting for him. They pressed the officer for details that might indicate that Karen was murdered. Investigation's not quite finished yet, so I can't say anything definitively, but all the evidence I've seen shows that she fell asleep at the wheel. Simple as that. At 7.30 at night? That makes no sense. Well, I shouldn't tell you this, but man-to-man, it seems she had a bit of a pill problem. Some folks saw her drinking right before she started driving, and one of my guys said there was marijuana in her purse. You do the math. Listen, Karen was going somewhere important last night. I think someone could have run her off the road to keep her from getting there. Well, I haven't seen any evidence of that. And no offense, but if there's one thing I've learned on this job, it's that you can't trust junkies. Doesn't matter how important their business is. Officer Fagan maintained that Karen had been incapacitated due to substance abuse, exhaustion, or some combination of the two. A Kerr-McGee official told him that Karen drove all the way from New Mexico the night before, so Fagan assumed that the overnight drive had caught up with her. But Steve Wadka and Drew Stevens knew that this wasn't true. Karen had flown back from New Mexico. Both men were aware that Karen had been abusing prescription drugs for the previous few months. A doctor had prescribed methoqualone pills, better known as quaaludes, for sleep issues a few months before. As Karen's whistleblower mission became more stressful, she started taking the quaaludes as mood stabilizers during the day. No one knows exactly how many of these powerful and addictive sedatives Karen was taking by the time she died in November of 1974. But while her pill addiction was a problem, the timing of Karen's death did not seem like a coincidence. The men were convinced there was more to the story. Drew Stevens was determined to get to the bottom of this mystery, and he next got to work trying to retrieve Karen's car. He visited the garage where it had been towed and was surprised to see the back seat completely bare. All of Karen's papers were gone. Drew asked the mechanic about the missing papers, and the mechanic seemed confused as well. He remembered reading at least one handwritten letter that was inside the car the night before and had no idea where it went. But the mechanic also recalled that a group of men had come through the garage late the night before to check the car for radiation levels. They said they were from the Federal Atomic Energy Commission. The garage had gotten a call earlier in the night that Karen Silkwood's former employer, Kerr McGee, was sending inspectors to check for radiation. The Kerr McGee officers never showed up, and the garage staff assumed that the AEC was sent instead. But no one checked this group's credentials. The inspectors had been left in the garage alone with the car, according to the mechanic. They headed out after a few minutes, saying that there was no radiation on anything. Drew Stevens was immediately convinced that these men stole Karen's folder of incriminating documents. Two days after the crash on November 15, 1974, Officer Fagan filed his accident report. Even though the autopsy and toxicology report hadn't been finished, the highway patrol officer insisted that Karen was sleep-deprived and under the influence of both alcohol and prescription drugs. Much of the evidence in his report was incorrect. 
It stated that Karen had driven back from New Mexico and that she had been drinking alcohol at a union meeting earlier in the night, even though multiple witnesses said she was drinking iced tea. The toxicology report later confirmed that there was only a trace amount of alcohol in her blood. It also found a substantial amount of methoqualone in her bloodstream. But because she had built up a tolerance to the drug, it probably wasn't enough to affect her behavior. Despite these clear inaccuracies, the Highway Patrol insisted on the asleep-at-the-wheel theory. They closed the case on November 15, 1974. But Karen's advocates at the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union refused to accept the official explanation. OCAW hired A.O. Pipkin, a motorcycle cop-turned-private eye who specialized in auto accidents. Pipkin did a thorough examination of the car and crash site, taking pictures and measurements of every dent and tire mark. By November 19, 1974, Pipkin came to the conclusion that Karen's crash was no accident. He pointed out that if Karen's car was truly out of control, it would have drifted to the right side of the road. Instead, her car crossed the center line and drove on the left shoulder before hitting the concrete wall. It also looked like Karen was conscious at the time of her death. The sides of her steering wheel were bent forward, meaning that she locked her elbows against the crash. In his initial report, sent on November 19, 1974, Pipkin told the union that he suspected Karen had been forced off the road. OCAW quickly put out a press release, saying they intended to reopen the investigation. Just a few days later, Pipkin received an anonymous call from someone in Dallas, harassing him about his PI credentials. After the caller hung up, Pipkin called a friend in the state licensing department to check the phone number. Hey, just checking in on a fishy call I received a few minutes ago. Do you have any records related to the number 469-555-0182? Just called me from Dallas asking about a job. 469-555-0182, was it? That's funny. I just got a call from that number. Asking about you, actually. They checked to see if you had a private investigator's license. I told him you did, and they were on their merry way. Well, do you know who they were? Yeah, I wrote it down. One second. Uh, the Pinkerton Agency. Oh no, the Pinkertons are after us now? It turned out that the suspicious call had come from the Pinkertons, an infamous group of private detectives and security guards that were known for union-busting and strike-breaking. Pipkin knew that the Pinkertons provided private security and intelligence for major corporations, including Silkwood's former employer, Kerr McGee. It looked like the energy company was actively working to discredit him. This confusing call set the tone for the next six years of investigation into Karen Silkwood's death. It wouldn't be the last time that espionage and intimidation were used to throw Karen's advocates off the trail. Coming up, the United States Congress tries to get to the bottom of Karen's case. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from Parcast. When you think of a criminal, do you picture a killer, a gangster, a thief? 
I bet you didn't think it could be the little old lady down the street who murdered her tenants. Every Wednesday on my series, Female Criminals, meet the unlikeliest of felons, mothers, neighbors, and unsuspecting lovers with a penchant for dangerous behavior. Discover the psychology and motives behind their disturbing crimes and find out where their story stands today. But that's not all. Airing right now on Female Criminals is our special five-part look at the world's most infamous femme fatales, women who were deceptive and deadly, but not always the villain. Catch these episodes and more by following the Spotify original from Parcast, Female Criminals. New episodes premiere weekly. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. In the spring of 1975, the investigation into 28-year-old Karen Silkwood's death had hit a standstill. The Oklahoma Highway Patrol refused to acknowledge the issues in their verdict. The FBI had opened a case in November of 1974 and then abruptly closed it five months later, saying that Karen's accident did not appear to be murder. But as the official investigations closed, public interest in the Silkwood case only grew. Multiple journalists and news outlets descended on Crescent, Oklahoma, and questioned the official narrative. Many also looked into the safety violations and quality control issues that Karen described at Kerr-McGee. It turned out that the plant was just as sloppy as Karen had alleged and had become even more dangerous since her death. The Cimarron plant's workers had lost one of their most vocal advocates when Karen died. And in the months since her death, Kerr McGee fully rejected the new safety measures that Karen's union was fighting for. The plant's managers became combative towards any workers who were agitating for change and even forced the entire staff to take polygraph tests to prove they weren't leaking information to the press. By January of 1975, many of Karen's friends and union allies were afraid that they, too, would somehow be threatened by Kerr McGee. Some workers even thought that Kerr McGee was intimidating them by scattering plutonium around the grounds. Independent investigators also found evidence to back up Karen's most shocking claim, that 40 pounds of plutonium was missing from the plant. Reporters from both NPR and the New York Times independently found that between 40 and 60 pounds of radioactive material remained unaccounted for. These findings were widely circulated, and Rolling Stone magazine even speculated that Karen accidentally uncovered a plutonium smuggling ring at the plant. No one managed to find the smoking gun, though, and most news outlets stopped covering the case after the FBI announced its closure. 
But as spring turned to summer in 1975, the case was revitalized by the National Organization for Women, or NOW, a massive feminist group headquartered in Washington, D.C. Many of NOW's national leaders were following the Silkwood case closely. They saw Karen's death as a particularly gruesome example of what happens when women in the workplace try to stand up to their male superiors. The National Organization for Women's Labor Task Force formally adopted Karen Silkwood's case in July of 1975. They started to pressure Congress into opening a formal investigation. All of NOW's local chapters were directed to prepare for a National Day of Action on November 13, 1975, the one-year anniversary of Karen Silkwood's death. Between July and November, the Labor Task Force started pushing on two senators, Lee Metcalf and Abraham Ribikoff, to head up the congressional investigation. They also tried to get more information about why the FBI had closed the investigation, but were stonewalled by the Justice Department. Some of NOW's most formidable leaders met with the Justice Department officials in early September of 1975 demanding more information about Karen Silkwood's contamination and death. The Justice Department attorneys refused to answer any questions. They also implied that Karen had contaminated herself with plutonium in the days before her death, had died of a drug overdose, and didn't even have the whistleblower documents in her car. The male attorneys said that the female activists had been watching too much TV and should stop expecting the FBI to solve all of its crimes. This, of course, infuriated the women. We have asked direct questions to the Justice Department and gotten no answers. We have been condescended to, patronized, and insulted in this fight, and frankly, that gives me even more reason to believe that there is more to the Karen Silkwood story than we have been told. That's why we at the National Organization for Women are calling for a full congressional investigation into Karen Silkwood's contamination and death, not only to protect her legacy, but to expand the rights of women in all workplaces. News outlets latched on to the idea of a cover-up. The National Organization for Women kept interest up by organizing rallies and parades in major cities. Members carried giant signs reading, Who Killed Karen Silkwood? and plastered Karen's face on buttons and stickers. In October of 1975, NOW presented a posthumous membership to Karen Silkwood. They flew her parents, Bill and Merle Silkwood, into Philadelphia to accept it in her honor. Photos of Karen's mother holding back tears on the convention stage inspired thousands of people to attend the candlelight vigils that were held on the anniversary of Karen's death, November 13, 1975. Letters poured into Metcalf and Ribikoff's Senate offices, begging them to take on the case. It became impossible to ignore. On November 19, 1975, they finally agreed to launch a full investigation. The senators assembled a team of investigators. It was headed up by Peter Stockton, who had also helped National Public Radio with their investigation into missing plutonium at the Cimarron plant. Stockton was idealistic and eager to get to work, but he quickly realized that nothing in this case would be easy. 
All of the important information about the case was hidden away in Justice Department and FBI file cabinets. Neither organization was keen on sharing. After weeks of negotiation, the Justice Department finally allowed the investigators to review their files on the case in December of 1975. But they only had a handful of documents, and most were so heavily redacted that they were basically unusable. The only useful document that the team got their hands on was a a four-and-a-half-page FBI memo that was supposed to summarize the Bureau's investigation. The memo was hastily written and riddled with inaccuracies. It never raised the issue of Karen's missing documents and spent almost three pages discrediting the accident specialist A.O. Pipkin. It also dismissed Karen's claims of health violations at the plant as irrelevant and characterized her as an unstable drug addict. The investigators felt that if this was really a summary of the FBI's findings, they had either done an embarrassingly bad job or they were hiding something. As 1975 came to a close, Stockton and his team became more frustrated. They didn't know how they could present a full case to the Senate when the FBI kept everything under lock and key. They managed to cobble together enough information for the beginning of the hearings, but not much more. Their best option was to wait until the hearing started and then subpoena key Justice Department and FBI officials, including Larry Olson, the FBI agent who led the case. It wasn't ideal, but they hoped it would be enough. Then, in March of 1976, just before the hearings were scheduled to start, Senator Lee Metcalf pulled the plug on the investigation. Metcalf claimed that the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union told him to drop the Silkwood case because they were satisfied with the FBI's investigation. OCAW officials quickly disputed this claim, and even members of Metcalf's staff were confused by this sudden change of course. But word quickly got out that Metcalf had been in a one-on-one meeting with Dean McGee, the president of Kerr-McGee, the night before his announcement. No one from Metcalf's staff or the investigation team was present at the meeting, which was highly unusual. In an interview with National Public Radio, Metcalf remained tight-lipped about what exactly was said in the meeting. Senator, as we both know, you pulled out of the Karen Silkwood hearings pretty abruptly last week. Now, sources in the House have said that this was due to some pressure from the nuclear industry. I didn't bow out of the hearings because of any pressure. Okay. What about the allegations that you met with Dean McGee, president of the Kerr-McGee Corporation, right before dropping out of the hearings? Well, yes, I did meet with Mr. McGee. And that closed-door meeting had nothing to do with your choice. Mr. McGee didn't pressure you or offer you anything? No. Do you still have concerns about the plutonium that went missing from the plant? Of course. The prospect of missing plutonium scares me. But Mr. McGee assured me that this batch of plutonium has been accounted for, and they cleaned up the Cimarron plant. The Justice Department agrees. So what else can we do? After Senator Metcalf stepped down, the investigative team scrambled to find another congressperson to replace him. They eventually landed on Representative John Dingle, who was already fighting to regulate the nuclear industry. 
The hearings finally opened on April 26, 1976. They were confusing and chaotic, with witnesses directly contradicting each other and insisting on closed-door testimonies at the last minute. The committee brought in a few nuclear experts and managed to get some answers about the health conditions that Karen had complained about at the Cimarron plant. It turned out that she was completely correct. One nuclear physicist said he was stunned that the Atomic Energy Commission had allowed the Kermagee plant to keep running. He openly speculated that the company's deep ties to the commission were the only thing that kept the plant open. Other witnesses weren't nearly as helpful. Many of the FBI-affiliated witnesses seemed to be intent on attacking Karen Silkwood's character. They harped on her sex life, heavily implying that she was bisexual. They also mentioned her depression, previous suicide attempts, and heavy use of prescription drugs as reasons that she shouldn't be trusted. The hearings seemed to be drifting away from Silkwood's contamination and death towards malicious gossip. The investigative team needed to refocus, but the FBI still refused to show them any official documents. Eventually, Representative Dingell pressured the FBI into a compromise. If they wouldn't release any files, they had to allow an interview with Larry Olson. The FBI reluctantly agreed, and in late April of 1976, they flew Olson to Washington, D.C. for a series of closed-door interviews with Peter Stockton. They insisted that another FBI agent had to be in the room at all times. Olson seemed nervous throughout the interviews, unable to honestly answer Stockton's questions because other agents were watching. About 20 hours into the interrogation, Stockton slipped his phone number to Olson. Late that night, his phone rang. Hello? You're wasting your time, Stockton. Who is this? You know who it is. Look, you'll never get to the bottom of this thing. The FBI will never tell you the truth. They can't afford to. This thing is so complicated, you'll never figure it out. You'll just go crazy trying. Larry, I... The conversation was reportedly cryptic and strange. It seemed Larry Olson knew something he couldn't say in the presence of his FBI colleagues. When Olson talked in public, his tone was very different. In the congressional hearings, Olson blatantly denied the basic facts of the case. He insisted that there was no problem with quality control or safety at the Cimarron plant and that no plutonium had gone missing. Both Stockton and Dingle were sure that the FBI had fed him this version of events and publicly alleged that the Bureau was derailing the hearings on purpose. The hearings continued moving forward in the summer of 1975. But just as it seemed like they were getting somewhere, strange controversies started popping up about Stockton and Dingle. Rumors circulated that both Dingle and Stockton used federal funds to visit sex workers. Both men denied these allegations, but they caused enough of a stir that the hearings were put on hold until the next legislative session. And by the time that they were ready to restart the hearings, legislative rules had changed. Dingle had to step down from the committee handling the Silkwood case. By early 1977, the investigation fizzled out. If the FBI had been seeking to kill the investigation, it seemed like they had succeeded. 
But thanks to the National Organization for Women, Karen Silkwood was now a household name. It was time to take the fight to a new arena, the courtroom. After this, we'll cover how the Silkwood case worked its way through the courts and peel back the layers of an alleged governmental conspiracy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And now, back to the story. The congressional hearings on Karen Silkwood's death were a major disappointment. Luckily, the National Organization for Women realized that their case was faltering in the fall of 1976 and started speaking with Karen's family about suing Kerr-McGee. They had three separate complaints. First, they would charge Kerr-McGee with negligence for allowing Karen to become contaminated in the days before her death. Second, they would charge specific members of the company with a conspiracy to prevent Karen and her union colleagues from organizing and improving the conditions at the plant. And third, they would level conspiracy charges at the FBI for covering up Kerr-McGee's illegal activity. Altogether, they planned to ask the corporation for half a million dollars to make up for Karen's injuries and an additional $10 million in exemplary damages, which would be split between her three children. The Silkwoods agreed to bring the suit and now hired a former ACLU attorney to start building a case. In February of 1977, just as the congressional hearings were fizzling, the attorney started building out the negligence case, He hired Bill Taylor, one of the best private detectives in the country, to look into the conspiracy charges. Taylor was well-connected in the intelligence community. One of the first steps he took was calling an anonymous source in the FBI, who he referred to as Echo. Echo told Taylor that there were top-secret field reports on Karen Silkwood that dated back to 1973, a full year before she died. It appeared that she was under heavy surveillance ever since she became a prominent figure in her local union chapter. And even though the FBI insisted that the case had closed in 1976, Echo said the documents were still being added to her file. Echo said that the Silkwood files included dozens of typed transcripts of conversations between Karen and her boyfriend, which implied that her house had been bugged as early as 1974. Taylor never saw these documents, but he trusted his source and got to work trying to corroborate everything Echo told him. Soon, he realized that he, too, was being followed. Twice, Taylor was tracked by men in unmarked cars. 
His house was broken into multiple times. At one point, he entered a darkened motel room to find four armed assailants waiting for him and just barely managed to fight them off. When he turned on the lights, it became clear that they were looking for his notes on the Silkwood case. Taylor knew that someone didn't want him to find the truth about Karen Silkwood, but it was a lot harder to pin down what exactly that truth was. There was no conclusive evidence that Karen had been deliberately killed. All he had was a pile of strange coincidences and contradictory stories. The private detective did make a few major breakthroughs. First, he figured out that Karen had set up an elaborate drop point system for her papers. She left them in an abandoned farmhouse near the Kermigee plant. This could explain how Karen kept the papers hidden from the company when they searched her apartment. The legal team also managed to get internal Kermigee documents by filing a subpoena. And as Taylor dug through these and compared them with the secondhand FBI information that he got from Echo, it became clear that there was a close relationship between the company and the Bureau. It did make some sense for a nuclear company to have ties to the intelligence community because nuclear power could be classified as a national security issue. But it was strange just how united the two entities seemed to be. As Taylor dodged the goon squads that were after him, the rest of the legal team struggled to get witnesses on the record. They had particular trouble with getting anyone from Kerr-McGee to talk, and on two occasions, their planned sources died of mysterious circumstances just days before scheduled interviews. As the court date drew closer and their requests to extend the discovery period were denied, the team dropped the conspiracy charges. They would need years to get to the bottom of that. So for the Silkwood family's sake, they went forward with a safer, easier-to-prove charge of negligence. In September of 1978, the complaint was amended. Now the case had little to do with Karen's death. It focused on the three times that she was contaminated with plutonium in early November of 1974. In order to win the case, the attorneys needed to prove that Kerr-McGee did not protect its workers from radioactive material and that Karen did not deliberately contaminate herself with the plutonium from her lab. These questions were a lot easier to argue than the thorny conspiracy claims. When the trial finally started in March of 1979, lead prosecutor Jerry Spence gave an impassioned opening statement, completely confident that the Silkwood team would win. Karen Silkwood versus the Kerr-McGee Corporation was the longest trial in Oklahoma history up to that point, spanning 10 weeks from March to May of 1979. It kicked off with a series of testimonies from nuclear experts. The vast majority of them agreed that Karen was seriously injured by her plutonium exposure and that her body was still contaminated when she died. Next. The prosecution team brought in Karen's former co-workers from the Cimarron plant. Their description of the safety violations at the plant seemed like a textbook case of negligence. In April of 1979, the attorneys representing Kerr-McGee tried to counter the prosecution's arguments. They stuck with the story that Karen had purposefully swallowed a plutonium pellet to discredit the company. Though there isn't any evidence to completely rule out that theory, it's well known that Karen was terrified of plutonium. If she had eaten a pellet, 
it likely wasn't on purpose. Both Kerr-McGee and the Silkwood estate rested their case in early May. After four days of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict. Do you find by a preponderance of the evidence that Karen Silkwood intentionally carried the plutonium that caused her contamination from work to her apartment? No, Your Honor. Do you find that Kermagee Nuclear Corporation was so negligent in its operation of the Cimarron facility, it allowed plutonium to escape from the facility and cause the contamination of Karen Silkwood? Yes, Your Honor. If you find that an award of exemplary damages is appropriate, what amount should be awarded to the Silkwood estate? $500,000 in actual damages. For exemplary damages, $10 million. The courtroom erupted in cheers. The Silkwood estate had finally won. Karen's friends drove out to the crash site on Highway 74. They erected a huge sign that read, Karen Gay Silkwood, born February 19, 1946, died November 13, 1974, vindicated May 18, 1979. The vindication was short-lived, though. Kerr McGee immediately appealed the decision, and in December of 1981, the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals overturned the verdict. The $10.5 million award for Karen's injuries was thrown out. The Silkwood family appealed the decision again, and the case eventually landed in the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1984, the court ruled in favor of the Silkwood estate, and Kerr McGee scrambled to settle with them out of court. In 1985, a full 11 years after Karen Silkwood died, her family accepted $1.38 million from Kerr McGee, who still refused to admit to any wrongdoing. But this court case only addressed Karen's contaminations and the working conditions that Karen endured at the Cimarron plant. There were still dozens of unanswered questions surrounding her death. No one knew why her car had crashed, how the FBI was involved, or what happened to the missing 40 pounds of plutonium. Private detective Bill Taylor refused to stop digging into these questions. He had a hunch that the keys to the case were in those elusive FBI reports. So throughout the early 1980s, he continued to hound his anonymous FBI source to sneak into the archives and look at the files. One night, Echo finally called Taylor with an update. He sounded terrified. Bill? Well, well. Good to hear from you. I took a risk earlier today and opened up the Silkwood files. Wasn't even able to read a full page before I freaked out and put it back in the drawer. And are you sure no one else is on the line? Who do you think I am? Right. Okay. So from what I saw... There was a car following Karen when she left the diner. I didn't catch who it was, but I guarantee you the Bureau knows. Anyway, it lost her when she turned down some farm road. She must have been hiding some of the papers there. Sure. So the car turned down that road to follow her, then met her coming back toward the highway. She sped around it and hit her back fender on the way. Then she turned onto Highway 74 and overshot it. Ended up on the left shoulder. So then she's driving on the shoulder, and this car is running parallel, boxing her in. And she's so focused on the other car that she doesn't see that concrete wall. And we all know what happened next. 
Echo provided the most complete theory of how Karen died. She was, indeed, being followed by either Kerr McGee or the FBI. That car caused the dents in her fender and boxed her in when she swerved to the left side of the road. In her nervous, jumpy state, she failed to notice the concrete wing wall. Bill Taylor was satisfied with that explanation of Karen's death. But one question still remained, where the 40 pounds of plutonium went. Echo had told him previously that the CIA routinely took plutonium from nuclear power plants and secretly sold it to the United States military allies. Taylor thought this under-the-table nuclear trade might explain both the missing inventory at the plant and the extreme secrecy that surrounded the Silkwood case. He wondered if Karen accidentally stumbled upon an international plutonium smuggling operation in her investigation into Kerr McGee. He talked to dozens of underground and undercover sources in the intelligence community. Eventually, he was told to check an empty airplane hangar in Southern California, just a few miles from the Mexican border. Not much was left in the hangar, and it clearly hadn't been used for a few years. But on one shelf, Taylor found a laboratory-grade chemical scale. He picked it up and gingerly flipped it over. The Kerr-McGee logo was embossed on the back side. There was also a Washington, D.C. area phone number scribbled on the wall. When Taylor dialed the number later that night, it turned out to be the Israeli embassy. Looking at all the evidence, it's pretty clear that there was a lot more going on in the Karen Silkwood case than just the death of Karen herself. But it's still worth wondering what exactly happened to Karen on the night of November 13th, 1974. I think Bill Taylor's final theory, that she was followed by another car and crashed accidentally, makes the most sense. We know that there were multiple groups who knew about Karen's whistleblower mission and were intent on stopping it. It makes sense that someone was following her to steal the papers and that the chase got out of hand. Well, that theory makes sense to me too, but we can't count out what others thought. Whatever the case may be, Karen Silkwood's story is about many people trying and failing to get to the truth about America's nuclear industry and the government entities that supported the industry. It's a sobering reality check about corporations that actively harm their employees and the United States government's strange tendency to protect these corporate interests. Ultimately, it's a dark story about corruption and how federal agencies and Fortune 500 companies can get away with almost anything, including hurting people like Karen Silkwood, who risked everything to hold them accountable. Thanks for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Karen Silkwood, amongst the many sources we used, we found Richard Rashke's book, The Killing of Karen Silkwood, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Thank you.
Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Kylie Harrington, with writing assistance by River Donahue and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Kai Jordan, and Dan Velasquez. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 